say that you ought, you can actually bear fruit 30, 60, even 100 fold, which is really a super abundant crop. But what's really interesting if you study this passage, uh, is that the way that Jesus uh, seeks for us uh, to be fruitful is really in a organic way. Uh, he is he is describing something, a germination process that is out of the control uh, of any human being. So even the best farmers know that they actually can't produce the crop. They can provide an environment in which the seed can germinate, but the actual process of a seed germinating or becoming fruitful is really uh, outside of their hands. So we need to acknowledge that at the very heart, our fruitfulness uh, before the Lord is something that's in the Lord's hand, and yet there's an environment in which God's uh, work can be at play. And if you study this passage, I, I think you'll find that there are uh, five what I call major roadblocks to us uh, experiencing the kind of fruitfulness that God uh, intends for us, and we'll just see how we go if we get to all five or not. But the first kind of roadblock that we see uh, in this uh, parable that Jesus tells us is the reality of Satan. Notice verse 15. As soon as they hear the word, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. So the very first group of people that, that, that don't reach the fruitfulness that God intended are a group of people uh, which they hear the word, but immediately Satan comes and steals that word from them. C.S. Lewis uh, famously said uh, that there are two equal opposite mistakes people make about the devil. They they either do not believe in his existence at all, or they have an unhealthy interest in them. The devil uh, loves both errors equally and hail the materialist and the magician uh, with equal delight. The devil doesn't mind if you're a materialist. In other words, the devil doesn't exist. Or if you're a magician, everything's the devil. He, he hails you with equal delight. Now, in amongst advanced partnering churches, where, where's our bias going to be? Are we more likely to be materialists or are we more likely to be magicians? Well, well, what, which side do you think we're going to land on? I, I think we're more likely to be materialists. We're more likely to function as leaders in a way that, hey, we love Jesus and we believe the gospel and we just kind of plow on and like if the devil does something, it's like maybe it's like super obvious, but... It's not something we are, are, are very um, aware of or give much focus to. But what I find interesting is that Jesus himself here highlights the reality of the devil's work in nullifying our actual fruitfulness. What I actually find interesting is that when we read the Bible, the guy that seems to be warning us most about the devil is actually Jesus himself. In fact, when he walks the earth, there is this kind of supernatural activity, uh, the process of actually praying for people that are kind of under some kind of oppression uh, of uh, demonic activity isn't unusual as you read through the Gospels. And it's interesting that when Jesus himself teaches us to pray, he prays, uh, teaches us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Interestingly enough, Jesus himself practices what he preaches because in John 17, 15, he prays, my prayer is not that you would take them out of the world, but that you would protect them from the evil one. 
So Jesus instructs his first disciples to pray daily that they would be protected from the evil one. Jesus himself, in John 17, great high priestly prayer, is praying not that we'd be taken out of the world, but he's been, he prays that we would be protected from the evil one. Just want to ask you, you're like a leader. Uh, when was the last time you prayed that you'd be protected from the evil one? When was the last time that was part of your private prayer time? When was the last time you as an eldership, when praying for your church, followed the example of Jesus when he was praying for his emerging leaders and prayed that they would be protected from the evil one? Or are you a functional materialist? You don't really believe the devil. It's like, really? I mean, this is like medieval stuff, right? Like, we're we beyond this. We, we, we're way more studied. We're way more clever. We, we know the gig. We, we've passed the, the, this kind of stuff. This maybe used to happen. But we're sophisticated. We read. We've got commentaries now. You know, we're like, really? Seriously? Praying for protection from the devil? Seriously? Yes, seriously. <laughs> Jesus prayed it. Jesus instructed us. He taught us how to pray it. And so... The, the, the biggest way that we can just be nullified is just, just by pretending like the devil isn't real. Now, it's important that when we engage uh, our thinking and our practice around uh, spiritual war- warfare or the devil, that we hold some important theological uh, things in balance. Dave Devonish, uh, in an excellent book on this topic, says that there are, there are really three things that you need to hold in tension when you think about the devil or around spiritual warfare. The first one is that God is sovereign. God uh, is all-powerful and uh, has all authority, uh, belongs to him. We're not in a dualistic universe where equally matched powers kind of struggle for supremacy. If you just read through the Gospels, that's just never the case. If there's any, any kind of demonic activity, Jesus has complete authority over that. So God's sovereign, and that's the first thing that we need to bank. The second thing that we need to bank is that we are personally responsible. When you spend too much and you bounce your credit card, it's not the devil, it's not some demonic attack. You've just spent too much money. You've been irresponsible, and you're getting caught out on that. When, when you don't do uh, the work you meant to on the sermon that you preached, and it, and it tanks, it's not because you were, like, demonically oppressed on the Sunday morning. It's because you did no work Tuesday through Saturday. That's what happened, and that's why it was a really poor sermon, and it's got nothing to do with the devil. So firstly, God is sovereign. Secondly, you are personally responsible. Thirdly, the devil and the demonic world are real. Many of us here, maybe most of us here, have been brought up with a so-called scientific or rational worldview. Under this system of thought uh, is seen as believing. If you can't see it or prove it, it doesn't exist. The problem with this worldview is that it exalts intellectual analysis above the word of God. The Bible teaches that the physical and spiritual worlds are equally real, both created by God. To ignore the spiritual world is to ignore large sections of the Bible. Cranfield wrote, one of the greatest achievements of the power of the evil one is to persuade us that they do not exist. Life isn't like a war. It is a war. All of us here this morning are engaged in a spiritual battle, whether we are aware of it or not. And when we read the Bible, 
we do see that people in leadership positions can be at times a particular focus of that kind of attack. Think of Job. Job was an exemplary God follower, wasn't it? In fact, in Satan's interaction with God, Satan is actually commending Job to God as this incredible example. But then he's saying, he's only really following you because you've really blessed his life massively. And I'm sure if you strip him back, he won't really follow you. So his commitment to God, his zeal for God, his, his devotion to God kind of placed him on the radar screen of a kind of a demonic attack. At moments like this, I take great comfort in my immaturity because I know that I, I, I will never make it onto that radar screen. <laughs> Satan will never be particularly aware of my impressive zeal and godliness. It's like, oh, don't worry about him. We've got, we, 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 we've got bigger fish to fry. Or, or think about Jesus speaking to Peter. Luke, Luke 22, verse 31. Jesus says to Peter, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. And like if Jesus is telling me this, I'm like, he asked you and you said no, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, he asked you, but you said no. I mean, he can ask what he wants. My kids know this. They can ask what they want, but that doesn't mean that they're going to get a yes. And it doesn't matter how many times they ask. It doesn't, it doesn't change the initial decision. Correct. And this is my daughter. And she's hugging me and giving me a kiss, and then maybe I'll change my mind. But the guys don't stand a chance. <laughs> Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but chillax, I've prayed for you, and when you've come through this mess, strengthen your brothers. Or what about Paul? In order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in the flesh. Check this out. How cool is this? Not a messenger of Satan to torment me. So it's not just that there is kind of general realities around Satan. It would seem that in the leadership ambit, there, there seems to be these moments of particular attack. And what I find kind of ironic is that for many of us as leaders, we can be unaware, unconcerned, and dare I say, naive at times when it comes to the matters of spiritual warfare, even though Paul himself in 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11 calls us not to be outwitted by Satan or to be unaware of his schemes. Paul says, don't be unaware, don't be outwitted, don't be unaware of his schemes. And you're like talking, what are you talking about? Schemes of the devil. And Paul said, don't be like that. And we are like that. A number of years ago, um, 2001, I was uh, in Gweru uh, in Zimbabwe uh, to conduct a wedding uh, for uh, Kevin uh, and Mandy, now Mandy Little. She was Connolly at the time. And uh, I had one of the weirdest experiences of my life. I was, at, was staying, they had a, a kind of a guest house and then a main house. And I went up to the main house just to chat through details of the wedding. And then I walked from the main house to the guest house, which is probably, I don't know, about 800 meters kilometer. And I was walking from the main house to my guest house when all of a sudden I heard something uh, that just caused the, the hair on my uh, arms just to kind of stand on end. I walked a little bit 
Further, and I heard it again, and it was the sound of a lion actually stalking me. It's walking through this path, long grass, and I could just hear I'm being stalked by a lion. And I just, whoa. And then I just relaxed and I just walked normally. I heard the sound. It was a lion. The lion was stalking me. But then I remembered the lion was in the cage and couldn't get to me. So it didn't matter. And I could carry on walking. And for some of us, we shoot the breeze. We walk around like the lion's caged and the lion can't really get to us. But actually, that isn't biblically accurate. Peter urges us, be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for somebody to devour. He's looking for somebody to devour. He's looking to take somebody out. That's what he's about. He's not caged. He's not a pretend lion. He's not a fake lion. He's a real lion who's trying to do real things. And friends, even in our kind of collective experience, we, most folk in this room are, by ministry standards, pretty young. And as a movement, we, we, we're pretty young. But if we just look at the experiences that have happened, even in our short history, I think we can look back at certain situations just say, Wow, that's kind of crazy that that happened. I think about PJ and Ashley Ponting in Johannesburg, gold first in the week in the lead up to that. Simon Pettitine, the very person who was meant to provide coaching and support for them. I think about the plant in Nairobi in the week in the lead up to that plant, Tashinga's mom passes away. She's not even able to be at the launch of it because her mom passes away. I think about PJ and Ashley being installed at Covenant Life and the next week just some crazy stuff coming out. I think about Common Ground deciding on five massive initiatives to bless the city in the next five years and for a crazy thing to come out. Just in our own story, not, not reading Frank Peretti, just auditing, <laughs> just auditing our own lives. It's just like, oh, was that just coincidence? Was that just coincidence? What was that? What was that? Friends, there's, there, there's a reality of spiritual warfare that Paul, the Bible, the thing we really committed, sufficiency of scripture, the thing we say we really believe and want to submit to, that book is saying, don't be naive. Don't be unaware. If you are leading in a way in which the devil isn't real, you're likely not to bear the fruit that God intended. Amazing. And one of the applications of that is exactly what Craig did, is that when we're in times of pressure, it's like, hey, we need to pray. There's, there's a spiritual thing going on. A number of years ago, we had... Uh, Jenny Eaton spent a couple of months at Jubilee and uh, uh, Michael Eaton's wife. And uh, one of the uh, elders asked her what her experience of Jubilee was like, what, what she kind of thought of Jubilee. And she said, you know, it was so great uh, being here and seeing all, all that you, you're doing. She said, the one thing I was left puzzled with was 
how little prayer you do considering how much you're involved in. Ouch. You're doing so many things, but you're praying so little. Why is that the case? Friends, our propensity, competent people, strategic thinkers, we can plan, we can work it out, we, we know how to do the stuff. And we can get into the do mode. And we're not in the prayer mode. We're naive about spiritual issues. And we're not going to bear the fruit. And we're not going to last because we're going to get taken out. And we need to be way more aware around what is actually going on. A couple of years ago, I actually did a message uh, on the schemes of the devil. And I've I've got my preaching notes that I'm just going to hand out uh, for you just to, uh, to read on that, but uh, myself and uh, Carl Johnson researched uh, four historic books on spiritual warfare. Uh, Thomas Brooks's book from the 1600s, Precious Remedies Against Satan Devices, the 1,200-page Tom on uh, the Christian as complete armor, also written in the 1600s, C.S. Lewis' screw tape letters and Lloyd Jones's uh, spiritual depression. And we analyzed those to try and find what we thought the three main areas were that Satan tries to get us in. And the three areas that we came up with were temptation, accusation, and isolation. And I've just got those notes for you just to uh, look at for you. For your own good. Satan is scheming to bring you down. And the three likely areas are going to be temptation, accusation, and isolation. And I just ask you, does anybody know what you're really tempted about? Does anybody in your life know what could likely bait you? What, what is the thing that is alluring to you? Does somebody know that? Or is that just something you keep quiet? about does anybody in your life know the area in which satan can come accuse you and drag you down and pull you down and feel so worthless and belittled and undermined because if you don't you jump in into isolation you're tempted you're accused but you've got nobody fighting with you And friends, if we're going to be leaders that last, we need to be leaders that are in relationship and we need to be leaders that are vulnerable. We are willing to share the areas that we're tempted in. We're willing to share the areas that we're accused in and that we've got brothers and sisters standing with us. If you do any analysis around uh, how herds work and how predators work, The guys that analyze this say there is incredible safety in a herd. And the reason why there's incredible safety in a herd is that when a predator attacks a herd, the the, the defense mechanism of the herd is that there's so many of them that the predator thinks, ah, there's so many of them, I'm definitely going to be able to get them. And so it doesn't focus on one of the animals, just runs at the herd. And by running at the herd... uh, but not focusing on a, a single one, it gives enough time for the herd to disperse and get away. And so really sophisticated predators, what they do is they run at the herd, they get the, they get the herd running and running and running until one drops off the back. 
And once you, are, once you isolate it from the pack, the success rate in, in, in nailing the single animal that's pulled off from the herd is much greater. And you know that from personal experience, if you can think about your upbringing when you were six years old and you went down to the coast and you think about the rock pool that had so many of those little fish in and you had your net. And there were so many of them, you were sure you're going to catch. And when you go down, you don't catch a thing. Because there's so many of them, you're not focusing on one, you're focusing on the whole. And the school of fish get away. Are you part of a herd? Or are you by yourself? You know, it, it's possible to be in an eldership team and still be isolated. You're in a team, but you're not sharing with the team. The, the team doesn't know your vulnerability. It's possible to be a part of Advance and everything always to be fine. How are things going? Fine. How are the kids? Fine. How's your marriage? Fine. Everything's fine. It's always fine. You're never sharing temptations. You, you're never sharing the, the accusations that are happening. Because, of course, the power of the accusation is it must remain personal and private. As, as long as it can remain personal and private, the devil can have a field day. And once he's won you over to an accusation, you then join his accusing team, right? Like when the devil gets tired, it's like, don't worry, I'll take the baton. I'll beat myself up. I, I'm, I'm, I'm used to your argumentation. I can, at, at any point, just step in and take over. And the debilitating effect of that on your life personally, on your marriage, on your family, on your fruitfulness is enormous. And so if we want to be leaders at last, we, 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 we need to take the devil seriously. And we need to think, where am I being tempted? How am I being tempted? How... how How's the devil accusing me? He is accusing day and night. We know that from the Bible. So it, we, we, we told what he does. But God wants to place us in community where we stand with each other and we resist his works in our lives. The other area where Satan can be massively active is in our interpersonal relationships. Paul writes in Ephesians 4.29, Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. Do not give the devil a foothold. If you've done any rock climbing, you will know that absolutely essential to rock climbing is an ability to get a foothold. If you cannot get a foothold, it's game over. You can get so far up the rock, but if you can't get the foothold, even if somebody's saying to you, just a little bit to the right, just a bit higher, if you can't get there, you have to drop down. The guys that climb to the top of the mountain are the guys that are able to navigate through the foothold. And Paul is just saying, anger, unforgiveness, that stuff gives a foothold for the devil to be able to do its work. James uh, is, doesn't hold back uh, at all. In James 3, he puts it like this. He presents two ways. He pr presents a way of wisdom and then a way of foolishness. He says, who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life and their deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. 
But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. James, again, is just going for the jugular. It's like, guys, don't fool yourselves here. They're, they're, they're just two ways. There's a way of wisdom, there's a way of heaven, there's a way of above, and there's a way below. And when you've got issues at play, such as uh, bitterness and envy and selfish ambition, just know this. This, this. this is earthly, it's unspiritual, and it's demonic. And friends, Satan can rip churches apart by just sowing Envy. Why are they doing it? Not me. Why does he always get to speak and not me? Why does he get that? Why is he doing the sight and not me? Envy. Bitterness. I'm so sick of that person. They keep on doing the same thing over and over and you just get bitter. Or it's about selfish ambition. Individuals that are just drunk on themselves. They've made their whole lives about themselves and not about the glory of God and the advancement of the church and the common good and that selfishness and that bitterness and that envy. Just, it just gets toxic. And eldership teams get ripped apart. And churches take major hits because we're not willing to be honest about what's going on at an interpersonal level. If we're going to be leaders that last, if we're going to lead eldership teams that last, if we're going to see sustaining grace in our church, then we, we need to be aware of this. Are you aware of this? Are you aware that there are these certain character deficiencies that become footholds for the devil himself? And that as team leaders, we, we need to be really alert to this. We can't allow bitterness to fester. We actually can't allow envy to fester. We can't allow selfish ambition to drive the day, irrespective of how gifted the person is. Because it's ultimately toxic and ultimately destructive. And therefore, we need to be aware of it. Simply overlooking somebody's offense over and over again doesn't actually work in the long run. It actually just cultivates bitterness. And we've got to have the courage to be able to have difficult conversations at times with difficult people for the sake of unity and for the sake of not giving Satan a foothold in which to leverage and leverage into the team and therefore into the church. We need to be wise. We mustn't be outwitted. We must be discerning and clear and empowered by the gospel to speak the truth in love. The second thing that we see here as a roadblock to the fruitfulness that God intends is what I'm calling the trouble with trouble. The trouble with trouble. Others like seed sown in rocky places hear the word and at once receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes because of the word, they quickly fall away. I want, to, I want you to notice in these verses a couple of things. Firstly, notice the reality of trouble. Jesus brings up the topic. Certain, uh, secondly, notice the certainty of trouble. When trouble and hardship come, not if, when. There's a guarantee from the Lord himself. And thirdly, notice the source of trouble. Because of the word, 
because of the word. Jesus is unequivocally telling us that trouble is on the way. And how we handle trouble will be a defining issue in our lives personally and in our leadership journey. In fact, if you study Mark 4 carefully, I would suggest to you that the main idea in chapter 4 is how you respond to difficulty. Because Jesus tells a parable where one of the applications are, by following me, you're going to hit trouble. And it's really important that you apply the word. You hear the word and apply it. Troubles come in and how you respond to trouble will be defining. He finishes his sermon. They get into a boat. And what happens? They hit a storm. And what happens? Jesus is where? Asleep. In business class, right? He's on the cushion. Mark tells us. He's the only, he's, he's the only guy that's got the cushion and, he, and he's sleeping while everybody's about to die. And what happens? The disciples go and grab him and they wake him up. And what do they say? Teacher, don't you care? Not teacher, save me. Not teacher, rescue me. Not teacher, I'm, I'm in danger. Teacher, don't you care? Don Carson puts it like this. One of the major causes of devastating grief and confusion amongst Christians is that our expectations are false. We do not give the subject of evil and suffering the thought that it deserves until we ourselves are confronted with tragedy. If that, by that point our beliefs, not well thought out but deeply ingrained, are largely out of step with God, then the pain from the personal tragedy may be multiplied many times over as we begin to question the very foundations of the faith. Do you get what Don Carson is saying? If you haven't thought about trouble, then when trouble hits, you get hit by a double whammy. The first punch is, boom, the pain of the actual tragedy that you're going through. But the second punch, the left hook, the thing that actually knocks you out, isn't actually the pain of the personal tragedy you're going through. It's the pain that goes on in your soul as you begin to question whether you can really trust God, which is what was going on in the hearts of the disciples. When they wake Jesus up, they say, don't you care? They were more concerned about an insincere savior than pending death of the storm. That was the thing that was freaking them out. And friends, if we haven't thought through this, if we haven't thought about the reality, because of the word we're going to experience trouble, then we're not going to be the leaders that lost. How do we get into this place? We get into this place with the wrong equation. And the equation is this. If I wholeheartedly follow God, then God will give me a carefree and trouble-free life. If I wholeheartedly follow God, he's going to give me a carefree and trouble-free life. And then when I don't get my carefree and trouble-free life, I become angry at God. Why? Because God, I did my side of the equation. I did God first. I've done God first. And because I put you first, you need to give me the carefree, trouble-free life. But you haven't held up on your equation. Keller says that how you respond to suffering reveals what you really believe about God. People get angry at God when they suffer if they've been negotiating with God. If they've got a deal with God. And the deal is this. I'll, do, I'll jump through your moral hoops provided that you bless me and give me a carefree, trouble-free life. And then when they hit the suffering, they get really mad at God because God didn't keep his side of the bargain. But friends, is that a true equation? Did Jesus say that if we really put him first, everything's going to be fine? Or do we find verses like this? In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. Or the promise Paul gives in 
2 Timothy 3.12. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Or Peter, dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trials you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. Pick your biblical hero. Moses, Daniel, Joseph, Paul, Mark, Jesus. Did they live carefree, trouble-free lives? Did putting God first mean that everything went really easily? C.S. Lewis said, if you're looking for ease and comfort, try a bottle of port. Don't try Christianity. (laughs) J.C. Ryle says that Christ's servants aren't exempt from storms. Friends, what's the equation that you're living by? Do do you believe this? Are you willing to follow Jesus despite the difficulties, despite the heartache? Despite the challenges. In Genesis, we read that Joseph says, he has this description of his life. It is because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. And I just want to suggest to you that that is a very emotionally complex (coughs) verse. God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Why was it the land of his suffering? Well, let's just remember about Joseph. Sold into slavery by his brothers. I come from a pretty shot-through family, but as stuffed up as we were, I wasn't sold into slavery by one of my brothers. So this is, this is pretty, pretty dark as your family can get. Falsely accused of attempted rape after serving magnificently. Your reward for serving magnificently is a false accusation of rape and wrong imprisonment. Overlooked with an undeniable supernatural gift even while in prison. Despite the fact that he's in prison, he's still believing God. He's still using his spiritual gifts. He's still pressing into God. What does that get him? Being overlooked having to live his whole life in a foreign land and always feeling like an outsider. That's why it was the land of his suffering. Was he fruitful? He was fruitful in Potiphar's house. He was fruitful in prison. He became second in command in Egypt. He got married and he had two beautiful children. He was fruitful in the land of his suffering. God made him fruitful in the land of his suffering. Now, the God that made him fruitful is surely a God who could have ensured that he didn't live in the land of suffering. But the God that made him fruitful was the God that placed him in the land of the suffering. Joseph has a testimony of fruitfulness from God in the midst of unimaginable pain. Pain, pressure, delay, confusion, perplexity doesn't stop us from being fruitful for God. It doesn't. It did. Prison didn't stop Paul from being fruitful in a way that actually he had no idea. He had no idea that actually at his worst moments, he was the most fruitful. He was sure that when 
he was preaching in Ephesus and, and the hundreds and thousands were responding to the gospel. He was sure that that moment was his most fruitful moment. He had no idea. He had no idea. And friends, we have no idea how we respond to God in the midst of hardship is critical for our own soul. It's critical for discipling our family and it's critical for the churches that we lead. Jesus promises that trouble will come. And he says, how you respond to trouble will determine your fruitfulness. And even though he preached the message and they all applauded, they got onto a boat and they forgot. And we're going to forget this, which is why we need each other. We need to remind each other that difficulty and hardships don't determine whether it's the will of God or not. God gets to decide where he places us. What we've got to do is trust God and believe him in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in, that he may produce a harvest 30, 60, and 100 fold. Because when we get into that place, when we trust God, we get into the supernatural abundant fruit. This really hit home to me a couple of years ago where Jeremy Hansen and myself drove out to Hermanus to see a young woman in our church who was uh, in her early 30s uh, dying of cancer. They didn't think that she would make it through the week and we went to go and visit her to pray with her. And when we got to her place, we we really struggled to be able to pray for her because she was so committed to praying for us. This was a 31-year-old woman who loved Jesus all her life, never married, never had kids, was going to die by the end of the week. And what she was more interested in doing was praying for us than letting us pray for her. And how many people know that when you are suffering from cancer and about to die and your life hasn't worked out at all in the way that you would like to have worked out, you can't fake it. She wasn't faking it. She was just off the charts, way more mature than the two elders that were there to pray for her. Spectacularly more mature. She was pure gold. She was bearing fruit 30, 60, 100 fold. When I think about the things that upset me and frustrate me, why, why isn't this working out like that? And I think of Solve. I think I'm a complete idiot and that she knows Jesus in a way that I'm yet to know him. How we respond really matters because ultimately, we are living for him and we're living for his glory. And so can I just call us, can we be men and women who really trust God? This cannot be the, we're the success show. Everything we touch turns to gold. It, it just, it's just not true. It's nonsense. If you think that that's what advance is about, we are really stuffing you up. Following Jesus is hard. He said it's going to be hard. But it's so worth it. There's nothing better than following Christ. There's nothing better than laying down your life for him.
And when you do, you reap a harvest 30, 60, 100 fold. There are three other things, but I think we're done. I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, I pray for each and every person in this room. I thank you that you love them with an everlasting love. And Lord, we just need your help. We just want to confess to you that left to ourselves, we are actually materialists. We, we, we don't engage in the supernatural. Our default position is what we can see, what we can feel, what we can analyze. We rate our strategic abilities way higher than the reality of spiritual warfare. And we just want to say we're really sorry. Lord, we're sorry that we're doing so much and praying so little. And I pray that you would help us as leaders to grow in prayer, as eldership teams to grow in prayer, and to lead our churches to pray more. And when we pray, pray that you would that you would deliver us from the evil one. You taught us to pray that. Lord, we want to be men and women that don't run from trouble, but run to you in the midst of our trouble. Lord, we know that trouble is going to come, but when it comes, Lord, we want to respond in a right and godly way. And Lord, we don't want to be men and women that fall into isolation and get taken out that impacts our own lives, our family, our ministry, our church. God, we truly want to be leaders that last. We want to bear 30, 60, 100 fold. The kind of fruit that's only possible if we really remain in you. You tell us that left to ourselves, we won't bear any fruit. But if we remain in you and you remain in us, we will bear fruit and fruit that, that, will, that will last. And that's what we want, Lord, not for our glory, but for you. We want to see lasting fruit for your great name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.